0: This is Cade Massey, practice professor at the Wharton School of Business. On this week's Wharton Moneyball Highlights, we give you the open topics half of the show. Current events, mostly NFL with a bit of baseball, a smattering of college football, and a quick take on the Ryder Cup on the way out. Lots of good things going on in sports. We give you as much analytics as we can on those in this half hour.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
0: Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball Sports Analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey in here with the full Wharton Moneyball crew. Shane Jensen is here. Audie Weiner is here. Eric Bradlow is here. We're coming to you via Zoom on Tuesday afternoon. Our usual spot, Tuesday afternoon, our usual venue, our friends at Zoom. And maybe we start with the college football score that came across my dashboard, 70 points by the Miami Dolphins. Yeah. My yeah. goodness gracious. Any questions about Mac McDaniel's play calling ability? What do you, what do y'all think?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's. I mean, again, it's especially impressive given. I mean, Denver was not a good team last year. But it was a team that was very much carried by its defense. It seemed to be actually a, an elite defense paired with a mediocre at best offense. This year, that suppose you know that 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 same defense just had ten touchdowns scored on it. First time in NFL history, five passing and five rushing touchdowns.
0: Incredible!
1: Incredible. I want to comment about defense. The little I know about NFL forecasting is that. Past defense doesn't predict future defense very well. So past performance, mm, in the past
2: if you effect. if you, you, mean, cool, you, if, you we, we, if you rank
1: teams no, by no, last, last year's year. defense, and the, you know last this, year. it would be
2: predictive of this year's defense.
0: But less predictive than offense is what audience. Oh is. yeah, well, that, I mean that, nothing that,
2: predicts this result. I'm just saying that it's not like they put this. Uh, get, you know, they didn't put this score up on the Chicago Bears, for example, uh, where we for, know
3: their defense is bad. Right. The The part that I thought was interesting was I heard a stat about like in some sense the amount of separation that his receivers have because you always wonder like how is Tyreek Hill open on every play you know Waddle didn't even play their number two receiver and and still Tyreek Hill's open and so what I heard was that Mike McDaniel's offense is number one in creating separation now there's lots of reasons for that it could be that he's got five guys that should be in the Olympic track stars that's one possible they're just faster than every other team um, the explanation given was also that um, it's the scheme. And so yeah. he's developed a scheme where he's got players in open space, basically yeah. on every play. And so this is where advanced analytics can really help us decompose. Is it speed? Is it the scheme? Is it, ha- you know, yeah, and it's probably not surprising, Adi as well, why Chua is leading the league in completion percentage because his guys have so much separation, and yeah, he's different... an
2: accurate passer. I mean, so no, he's accurate too. To look at the stats on that; it's not like he would not be succeeding at his current accuracy levels. You know, the the extra separation his receivers are getting it's probably leading to ten touchdowns a game or whatever. But that, you know, he's still. It's not just because of separation that it's interesting, Shane. I up. interpreted, I, I agree
3: with you, but I interpreted the stat the opposite direction, which is how yeah. worse a quarterback could there be, and that person still complete <laughs> a large fraction of their passes because the guys are so wide open. I no, I'm we not. We saw it last about.
2: year. We saw it last year when two they were two they were like scoring you know like 400, 500 yards a game went and then two was injured and then we saw what happened.
0: Well, one of the things that happens with that. Scheme and that kind of quarterback is that it's not just he hits the guy, but hits him in stride because the guys are moving all the time, and so the yards after catch are highly a function of how accurate the pass is. But I, but I, Eric, real quickly on the college side, one of the great things about having. Steve Sarkeesian as the coach of the team that I pull for is that he's known as a great schemer and a great play caller and guys are just running free all the time across the field, you know? So if if you're, it's a huge advantage, it's a huge advantage. I think kind of an underweighted advantage. Shane.
2: I just have one found out on this. I actually looked up. There's actually a quarterback in the NFL with more passing yards than two. I was shocked by this given
3: the games that he's had so far. Can you guys, guess who it is. It's the Vikings. Kirk Cousins is my guess. The zero three, Kirk Cousins. Well, look, I know why. I mean, Shane, we've talked about this many times. I know for a fact he shredded the Bucks in Week One for over four hundred yards. They had four turnovers. Um, I think they've had maybe nine or ten turnovers. I'm pretty sure they would lead the league in turnover margin in the worst in the worst by their last. And so mm-hmm. they've turned the ball over time and time again. But I, yeah. it's, I, I guess Kirk Cousins. So I knew that was the answer. But it wouldn't surprise me. Does he have a thousand yards already?
2: It might I it's I, I might yeah, it might be over a thousand actually. Yeah. But anyway, it's uh yeah, I mean the Vikings and Chargers are kind of both teams that you know the game's gonna be close and they'll find a way to they'll find a way to lose it. <laughs> Last hard year they luck were very teams. lucky and found a way to win games that were close, though we know
3: what happened. To well, maybe. but it does go it does go, by the way, to a point you just made about that game. Where the, and Adi love, would love this too, because my Zach Bradlow, Zach Drapkin also both tweeted about this. The Chargers, let's be clear, the Chargers went for it, fourth and one yep. from their own 24 yard line, their own 24 Audi with a minute 50 left. Now, let's be clear why that's the right analytics play. If they make the first down, the game is over. So it reduces uncertainty to zero. They literally could have knelt on the ball. And so it turns out that was a 89% versus 82% decision, 7% on that one play. A lot of people, the announcers just didn't get it. They were like, I can't believe they're going for it. But this ends the game. And so that was a great analytics moment in the NFL. Another one was also the Packers down 14, scored a touchdown to go down eight in the fourth quarter, went for two to go down six. That's another thing that comes straightforwardly out of analytics. As a matter of fact, my my son Zach also texted me last night a mistake that the um, the Bengals just beat the um, whoever Rams. the Bengals who the Rams the Rams when the Rams scored a touchdown with three minutes left to go down four they also should have gone for two to go down three to go down two instead of three because again let's remember if you're the road team and you're the worst team. If you're if the best case for you is overtime, then you've already cut your probability of winning to no more than fifty percent. Why not put yourself in a position where you win the game outright with a field goal? So both of those, I thought, highlighted analytics. Going for it on fourth and one, going for two down four, down eight, and going for two, which they didn't do, down four.
0: Eric, I, it's, I'm struck by a couple of your examples being your lauding. Making the move that gives you a chance of ending the game in a positive way, and uh, that all makes sense to me. But I'm I'm struck by the flip of it, which is something that seems to be the case that coaches are reluctant to make the move that introduces the possibility of ending the game in a negative way. So, for example, it was the Raiders, was it? Were it was it not? Who kicked the yeah. field goal? They were down. Yeah,
2: they kicked the field goal down
0: eight. It's just unbelievable. Two and a half. And Daniels was like, "Well,
2: I, it was a two possession game I anyway." Mean,
0: well but here's the thing this is this the same logic you see it over and over again they feel they they don't want the probability of winning to go to zero they want to extend the possibility of winning as long as possible even if it reduces the expected likelihood of winning so yeah. had they gone for the first down or the touchdown in that situation and not gotten it game over. No, and that's what they're trying to avoid. But that's actually not true in that <laughs> case. Absolutely. No, 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 no.
3: They still had the same number of timeouts and they still could have stopped oh, them. And then they the stopped back. them at the five yard line, as opposed to kicking the field goal oh, and stopping them at the 40. Okay, so, so
0: it's even worse. It's even worse. Than it's even
3: worse. The game so, was not over. Okay. No. So it's interesting. So, you
1: know, uh, I have this model for, for fourth down decision-making, it's our new paper. We started talked about it a little this week. Uh, uh, Ryan talked about it. At Nessus. it went over real big. We ran real quickly. Hold ahead.
0: on, real quickly. Nessus is the northeastern sports,
1: sports uh, uh, conference.
0: So a, a relatively actually big sports analyst conference. And let me just say the 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 hubbub around this paper has been great. It was on Twitter. I've had comments from people in my email box. People love the paper. It's you and your PhD student. People yes. love this
1: paper. So a couple of things they they loved about, I can't, we should maybe devote a session to talk about it. But one of the things that's relevant here is we contribute to the fourth down discussion, a measure of uncertainty. Um, And the uncertainty actually comes from a bunch of things. There's obviously parameter estimates and model estimates. But the thing that we addressed comes from the inherent uncertainty because you just don't have enough Observations of football. You think you might have 50,000 or 500,000 plays to deal with, but you really don't, particularly when it comes to win probability models, because the data is highly order correlated and there's selection bias. So we have a way to deal with that to put what we call level of confidence. And the play that we talked about here. It just, it's just one of the most biggest no brainers around the go for it. No matter how you slice it, it's just nearly, it's just a near certainty. So
0: you're amazing. Adi. You're saying the main, I, I take one of your main lessons of this project. You're you are not, you shouldn't be as sure about your model as you think you are. And, and yet you're saying there are situations where you can't be <laughs> sure about your model. And this yeah, happened.
1: There, there, there's actually a couple. So, but going back to the fourth and one that you're raving about, um, the model is actually very uncertain about that. If I if I if I have the right play that we're talking about, fourth that and one play, from your own twenty-four. That one that you're talking about? Uh, no, uh, I think this is one when you. Um, this was one of the games where there was they decided to kick the field goal rather than go for it. Go for it.
3: Oh, this At is time. the Raiders game where they kicked the field goal down eight with two thirty left. Oh, and four. No, way. no No, that's way. not it. That was. Um. Uh, I'm, I have to look it up. Can I ask a
2: question way. about the fourth and one, just in general,
1: as opposed that specific question. Uh, so there's a, there's been a couple of fourth and one decisions that that are that everyone thinks are sort of obvious, but sometimes are not uh, obvious. We don't really understand. But I, 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 there's one that I want to talk about that, that, that that's really fascinating. A lot of these er- everyone likes to point to the fourth and one decisions late in the game or or the fourth down decisions late in the game, because that's where there's a lot of leverage. Right. The decision really matters. And um, but it turns out that there's actually a lot of really good plays early in the game that aren't being acted on aggressively. You should be going for it much more frequently because the difference in wind probably doesn't change much. So it could be 41 versus 40 and a half percent disadvantage, like less a half a percent. People think of that as kind of irrelevant, but the answer to that is actually wrong because if the confidence turns out to be 100%, like you really should be going for it on these situations, it might be a small wind probability, but they happen all the time. There's lots and lots of first and second and third quarter decisions that people don't mm-hmm. tend to pay attention to because the win probability differential isn't that much, but they add mm-hmm. up. And, mm-hmm. and so we actually want you to, to, to figure out where the no brainers are early in the game and act on them much more and think about those as much as you think about those late ones that are high leverage.
0: Yep. There are a few people who are collecting these more systematically these days and reporting out teams and coaches' dispositions across all of the observations because they're taking or passing on those opportunities throughout the game. And as you say, they're either accumulating or neglecting edges along the way. Shane?
2: The frustrating thing about all these probability calculations is they don't take into account the play call. There's no certainty in something, I mean, or, or a lot, there's a ton of uncertainty about fourth and one decision making, and a ton of uncertainty, there's no situation where you'd have total confidence, because the, the play calling in in fourth and one, kind, in these sort of very uncertain situations seems to me so terrible. Like, I saw multiple yeah. fourth one situations. Well, hold fourth on. And, it fourth and like one, the- if you just, like, fall over is basically total confidence.
0: But well, the, fourth the- and the Eagles seem to have figured out a pretty highly certain way to convert fourth and one.
2: Gary, that, that, that makes it guaranteed or Tom Brady sneaking ink, that's guaranteed, but fourth and one from shot. Somebody needs to explain to me the context where that makes any sense at all. And I see it all the time and it's obviously throwing off all, I mean, probably fourth and one is more certain if you could condition on doing something intelligent
0: right.
1: on fourth and one. You know, can I can I follow up with that? I remember having a conversation with Aaron Schatz about play calling and how we as statisticians interpret outcome uncertainty as as randomness, right? We think of that as randomness, but a professional football play caller, a team, they don't think of it as as random. They think of it as making a mistake. So when the play fails, it's because they called the wrong player they didn't execute. And when it succeeds, it's because they called the right player they executed. And that's what you're, you're, you're pointing out. Well, like, no,
2: I'm more saying yeah. that they, they are calling particular plays that it is impossible to execute in, in a right. situation where it, is, should, it should be almost guaranteed to execute.
0: Okay, as we transition, one quick moment on college football, because we had this over-under contest last week. We had this great slate of games. I laid out nine games. And ask how many of these will the favorite win? Just straight out. And the spreads range from, you know, plus or minus 14 to plus or minus two or three. Great slate Saturday afternoon. We took, I set the over under two and a half. Shane and Eric took the under. Adi got go to the, taking the over with me and zero favorite slots zero it's an extraordinary run boring chalky chalky chalk chalk of a day i went out and looked at the probabilities we were kind of kind of making them up out of the thin air on the show i ran them and the expected number of upsets turned out to be two and a quarter i think so i set the line slightly too high but it was going to be between two and three so two and a quarter so we weren't crazy the 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 probability that you would see no upsets in that nine game slate was five percent which is even higher than i thought it was five percent chance
3: I think we have to stop predictions because I think you guys are would vouch for this. I think over our nine plus years of show, not only am I in last place every season, but by an extraordinarily large margin. So I'm leading right now, co-tied with Shane for this season. So we can stop.
1: Got to wrap it up. All
2: right. <laughs> I mean, I, I if, like if, that, if, if uh, that really was predictably, if that was true, Eric. Then there, there's there obviously a way of turning your predictions into
1: optimal predictions. That's
2: right. Go so the That's opposite. Right.
3: I got it. I got George it. George Costanza. Can next I, year, can
1: I jump in here? Uh, I don't see how you can get a five percent uh, if you're two and a quarter is the mean. I don't see how five percent can show up as a zero. Um, that just seems a little bit, slow. I'll give
0: you. A little I'll little give you the little spreadsheet. It was pretty straightforward, I believe, but I, I would be. I was surprised that it was too that high as well. So maybe I did something wrong. Guys, uh, let's talk about baseball, and I know y'all are going to take us into player level, Cy Young kind of stuff. But can we just marvel for, a no, marvel's a little strong word. We have some fun races. We have some fun races and our Oreos are maintaining. It's just been tight and they picked up a game on Sunday. They, they and the Rays were off yesterday, but it's a two and a half game lead with a week left. So the East, I know, and y'all don't want to talk about the East, but it's a fun division. It's worth noting that. Around, I, knew, around. I mean, we
2: let's just join ourse- ourselves in misery that the 1966 was the last time the Red Sox and Yankees finished worst and second
3: worst in their division. Or wow. wow. Going back wow. then, Geez, it wasn't Now, Cade, one of the things, of course, we're upset about as baseball fans here in Philly is that, and also as fans of the Orioles, if you think about if chalk happens in the – first round of the MLB playoffs. The second round will be the Orioles and the Rays. And the other first round will be the Phillies and the Braves.
0: So
3: I'm not too happy about either of those two, actually.
0: That's not great. On that point, how much of an advantage is it to get the bye, get your guys rested, get your pitching rotation set up just right, get the home field? It is an advantage, right? I mean, we've known for a long time that whoever won that, or whoever won the AL at least was going to see that same team in the second round, as long as they make it through that best of three, which is not a given best of three. I mean, God, it's almost flipping coins, but what advantage do you think it is to be able to get a little rest, set up your pitching rotation and get home? Oh, I,
3: I think it's huge because just think uh, of. let's also remember Adi, the second round is best of five. So let's right. remember, let's say the Phillies play in the first round, which it's likely they're going to be the home team. They have to pitch Wheeler, Nola, etc. Now, of a sudden, there's one day off and now it's games one and two of the next series. None of those pitchers can pitch games one and two. If anything, maybe they can pitch game three. So that means potentially you have your four and five starters going against the one and two starters of the other team that's had six days off already. You could argue an expectation. You're probably down one and a half to a half. It's not two to zero, but it's probably one and a half to a half. That's a tough hole in a five game series. And th- th- yeah, I mean, that
0: makes
2: it a lot. Well, Shane, you- that I'm sorry, argument you- would be the hitters get a cold.
3: I mean, so I mean, I think we have to sort
2: of when you think about. It, I mean, I think you know extra rest does. I think help pitchers and they're kind of used to sort of like maintaining whatever their version of momentum or performance and mechanics is through like many days off. That's kind of their style. Anyway, for hitters where you're used to kind of hitting every day, I I don't know if that extra rest is actually helpful.
0: Okay.
1: Adi? Uh, can we change topics and talk about Blake Snell? I don't know whether that's on on the cards yet because I'd love to. No, I just want to
3: know that if that. you think how big an effect size is what uh, Kate's talking about. Besides a buy by change rule, just doubles your probability already. Even conditional on, let's say, the the team going through, how much loss of probability do you think there is yeah. due to As, the, loss of pitching rotation? Possibly, you know, lack of rest. Although maybe it's positive in some ways. I mean, what do you think? I
0: assuming effect? the teams are assuming the teams are are relatively. I mean, the breaks evenly matched, and there's a little bit of a home field advantage, but just the just the setup, just the time away.
1: Well, I mean, I think there's a little bit of an advantage because you really want to pitch your best pitchers most frequently. That's really the most the biggest advantage you get, and if you can line them up, they're going to pitch the most in, in the in the whole series if they get to start. If Wheeler has to pitch in the two three in the three game one, it, he's kind of running behind, and that's a that's a pretty big loss. On the other hand, I always wondered about this. Um, don't you not want to start? your two best starters against each other. You would like almost want to like have your number two or three guy go against their number one and have your number one go against their number two. I wonder that you accumulate a little bit of advantage. I just think you guys theory. are,
2: you guys are all so cute with your little strategies for the playoffs. <laughs> it's a coin flip, right? I mean, come on, don't, yeah, don't talk yourself into so Like really, some I'm kind I'm... of strategic thing again.
3: Well, I will say one thing, Shane, I think you would agree with this. If you were the measurably worst team, like you can make an argument, anybody playing the Braves you could construct in a five game series, you could construct an argument, as Adi said put your best pitchers games three, four, and five, and just hope you make it.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: It's not a horrible strategy if you didn't think, of course, they would do the same, but that's fine.
0: All right. Well, that's that reminds me of Ryder Cup, which we'll get to uh, fleetingly on the way out. But Adi's got a Cy Young thing going on here. Adi. Yeah. So
1: Blake Snell is going to win the Cy Young in the National League. Um, I believe, um, and there's a couple, here's two, three facts about him. I think are really interesting. One of them is um, he has a 1.2 ERA over 23 games this season, which is just unbelievably low. Um,
3: Wait, his ERA well, for the season is 1.2? No, it's
1: not. No, oh. over a 23 game stretch over the season. I think the last 23 games, which is ridiculous. No, not for the whole season the whole, he's in the twos. Yeah. But what's fascinating about him is he has, almost five walks per nine, which is outrageously high for a pitcher of this quality, which to me is very fascinating because when you go to like Fangraphs, which has a war calculation, which is based on FIP, they just hammer him for having all these walks. But it's a great, Blake sounds a great, great example of why that's just dumb for pitchers, because pitchers can give up walks strategically, particularly if they're wonderful, very high strikeout pitchers, <laughs> you pitch around the guys that's, you that's, want, you know, a walk when there's two outs is, is, is often irrelevant. And it's, it's just to to well, to count a pitcher stats uh, walks as equal is just sort of ridiculous. Um, so uh, what do you want to say? <laughs> if you're Blake Snell's quality, yeah, yes. maybe walks don't matter. Yes. But, I mean,
2: you're, you're pointing this out because it's so historically weird. I mean, he he is a, a weird pitcher because he's able to somehow pitch around walks. But in a way that most, you know, I still do think walks in general, like, walk, oh, of don't course, walk average. is great advice for pitchers in general. Absolutely, Very few of them have Blake Snell's kind of, I think, not replicatable talent of getting out of it.
1: Well, sure. But the very best pitchers are able to do that. And that's something to recognize, not mm-hmm. the, your typical student, but the absolute best ones. So if you look, for example, at his war, according to fa- fan graphs, it's around four. Um, our war calculation, a grid war has him well over six and, and uh, Garrett Cole is, is second place. Um, and, but, and almost a game behind in terms of the season war level. But what's fascinating is because he never gets far in the game, he's, He's nothing like the, the pitchers from from like Pedro Martinez, you know, who would average about nearly 0. .35 war per game, which is just crazy high compared to what, what Blake Snell's doing. It's like not even on, just a little bit more than half that because he's not he's pulling him in the fifth or sixth inning game after game. The starters are just not being used in today's game. All this is
2: telling me that the Cy Young race in the NL was underwhelming this year.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, but it's remarkable figures for an underwhelming race. I mean, to be generally that good on a per-game basis, per-inning basis, actually.
2: Per-inning, exactly. Yeah, per-inning. Like, he's, he's the best kind of, like, weird closer as starter out there or whatever. <laughs> you got it.
0: So it's, I want mean, y'all give me a team since yours are sitting out the postseason. What team are you most interested in watching? I'm guessing Phillies. Is there a team, Phillies. Philadelphia, sure. a team beyond Philadelphia, maybe in the AL that you're intrigued by or pulling for as we, as we move into the last week of the season?
2: Yeah, the Orioles and the Mariners, if they make it though, it doesn't look like they will. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm all team Orioles at this point. They're exciting. They're young. They're not the Houston Astros. Um, You know, to see from a Red Sox fan, the season is not a six has not been a success, but it's also not been a failure.
3: (laughs) In my case, it's the Braves. I just want you know, they've been so dominant in the uh, MLB season this year. Just want to see how they do. That's all. I just want to see if they perform as well as they have. And, you know, I'm going to keep going by Shane's point flip model. I don't put them as much of a favorite against the Braves or any of the other top teams in the – the uh, so there were Dodgers in the top teams, but they've yeah. had a dominant regular season.
2: Yeah, agreed, agreed. It would be, you know, kind of out of historical interest, it would be cool to see them uh, the, uh, close it out.
0: Okay, last word, Ryder Cup, one of the best events in sports, only every other year, US going back to Europe, they have not won in Europe in 30 years, they've got a much more seasoned team than do the Europeans, European top heavy, bottom heavy, by some accounts, they have the top three golfers out of the 24 and the bottom three golfers out of the 24. What are you expecting to see? And just the last few bits here, what are you expecting to see? How excited are you about this Ryder Cup?
3: Well, U.S. hasn't won on foreign soil in 30 years, so that's also interesting and exciting. And uh, it's always interesting to see who can take down potentially the top golfers in the world. And so it's it's a very interesting Ryder Cup. I agree. And there's the polarization index is high.
0: But anybody can, right? This is the thing about match play in golf. I mean, anybody can take down the top player in golf. This is, I mean, the the, the guys you haven't heard of from Denmark, those guys are going to take down somebody in golf. It's going to
3: happen. I think all of you know the stat in the last two seconds. Tiger Woods, I think, is 8, 12, and 4 in the Ryder Cup uh, singles matches. So let's, or or it's single in that Hmm. plus the President's Cup. So the the greatest golfer of our generation has basically a slightly sub 500 record.
0: I think Shane is seeing another coin flip model. He's going to be, he's going to be, uh, it's expanding. my momentum. He's expanding his uh, reach. All right, guys, that's been another Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM for the whole crew. We had everybody in here for the whole hour. Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradle. This has been Cade Massey. Big thanks to Maddie. Dats, the boss man, always keeping us on track and a big thanks to Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man for doing the real work around here. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time between now and then enjoy your sports.